from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. And we are here. I am in studio with Rob. And KC is actually not in the booth. Come over here and say hello, KC. What do you got to say for yourself? How are you guys today? Good to have her here. Always eloquent. And she is seldom down here amongst us, so it's great to have her here. And to all of you here on TikTok taking my question or giving me the questions, thanks. It's great to have you here. We are taping an episode of the Badass Counseling Show. This one will actually be going up tonight, uh, Saturday night, 12.01 Sunday morning. So... We're gonna just dive right in. I've got a question here from Mark. I'm thinking of getting a cat to bring more love and meaning to my life. Thoughts? I don't know why you wouldn't, Mark. I mean, all the dog lovers would say, no, no, don't get a cat. And all the cat lovers would say, yeah, but dogs are so much more work. You have to potty train them, all that shit. Um, but your fundamental premise, you're considering getting an animal to bring more love into your life. I'm a big fan of it. I have three dogs myself. Um, my kids have dogs, uh, one as a cat and so forth. So uh, no, I think it's great. And that's you getting your own needs met. And you, while you're doing that, I recommend that you're also doing journaling. I mean, counseling, sure too, but uh, always flushing out your feelings and getting down to the messages inside of you that might be counter to love so that you're flushing out the crud so that your own natural love, because self-love is a natural thing, can that natural love for yourself can flourish. But get a cat to get more love and meaning in your life, I'm all for that idea. And you know what? Go for it. All right, next question. I feel energized when speaking to others about healing themselves. Should I be a group leader? You know what's great about that question? What's great about that question is I believe in following your energy. I really do. And one of my all-time favorite authors, one of the sort of Bibles in my own spiritual work over the last 35 years, 37 years, is a woman by the name of Shakti Gawain. She was sort of a new agey person back in the 80s, 90s. Um, I don't know if she's still alive or not, whatever, but her book, particularly her book, Living in the Light, she's so clearly and simply, in, in ways better than I have ever written in any of my books, she so simply talks about how really our connection to our own energy is leading the path for who you really are. That when your energy is up, whatever it is you're do, you are doing, that's, that's who you are. It's an indicator of at this stage of your life, this is where you need to be. The things that give us energy, that and not just that make us happy. Happy is almost a head word. But I mean, in, on, in your body, the things that energize you, those are the things that are you. The things that bleed your energy, bore you, numb you, suck the life out of you, the things that you have to conjure up your energy to do, those are the things, that is the surest indicator that this path this job, this relationship with this person, this geography, this season isn't you. That which sucks the life energy out of you, that is the clearest way of knowing that this isn't you. And those things that infuse you with energy, best way to know those are you. At least at this stage of the game, that can morph into and always does morph into something that gives you even more energy or new energy. And sometimes the things we have energy for last for a period of time two years, five years, 10 years, 25 years, two months, and then it morphs into something new. And that's why I'm always telling young people, you know, get out there and try things. See what might look, even if you don't know what your heart's passion is, get out there and try things. Get out there and, and take a job that looks interesting 
and take it for as long as it's interesting. And then always be looking for, well, what's the next open door? What's the next? Or maybe you get in there and you realize, no, I could do this for the next 10 years. I'm going to stay doing this. Great. But you have to read and trust, trust, trust your own energy because it is speaking. I feel energized when speaking to others about healing themselves. Should I be a group leader? I say, go for it. Go in, wade in, you know, put one foot in, see how it feels. Put another foot in, see how it feels. Wade in a little further, see how it feels. And your energy will speak to you. Your level of excitement and feeling energized doing it will speak to you. When Rob and I and KC and I, when we make these shows, it energizes us, all right? For me, it's the actual show part, but Rob's on the back end doing all that heavy lifting, but for the most part, he enjoys it. Safe to say, Rob? Absolutely. And KC does so much of the marketing, the advertising, the creative. Rob does a lot of the creative too, but and we're each doing things that we love when it comes to just this show, let alone in life. So things that give you energy, keep going down that road till either it opens up like a beautiful flower in front of you or leads to another door that you want to go into next. All right, next question. Why do I feel like I'm always being judged? You feel like you're always being judged because in all likelihood, you've been judged your whole life. We rewind that tape all the way back to, and it could have been as early as one or two or four, very, very, very early. And those of you that follow me on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, you've seen that in the last few weeks, I've been doing uh, several videos geared towards new parents, parents of newborns, parents of toddlers. And one of the ones that I did was on language around a newborn, language around a one-year-old, and that children are absorbing. They can comprehend words, but not only can they comprehend words and their meanings, they can, compre they can comprehend, they sense the feeling attached to the word. So even if you're, uh, you, know, you know, you're laughing and saying, oh, you're such a klutz, they, sometimes they'll feel the feeling, but sometimes, or even if you say, oh, you're such a nice boy, aren't you? Well, they sense the anger in your voice, right? And their brain doesn't have a filter. So they're feeling the anger. And the times where you say, oh, you're such a klutz and you say it all jokey, their brain registers as klutz, okay? Um, and so what I'm getting at with all of this is you feel judged. If you feel like you're always being judged now, it's because your entire life you've likely felt judged. That you have someone's voice inside your head. You think it's your own voice judging you. No, it's so, it was never your own voice. No child comes out of the womb thinking, God, I suck, Wow, no. Children come out of the womb embracing life. They are beautiful. They are, they are tabula rasa. They are clean slate. So somebody wrote on your slate that you suck, that you're not good enough, that you're no good, that you're stupid, that you're too smart, too ugly, too pretty, too whatever. Yes, even too pretty. I have plenty of clients over the years who were undermined by a parent because the parent felt that the child was prettier or more handsome than they are. And so they would hurt the child or cut off their hair or whatever. My point in all of this is you feel judged because you've been judged your whole life. And what you have to do in order to heal that is you have to go back in and begin to identify those voices. So when you guys hear me talk about bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself and that those have to be exorcised, those have to be pulled out of you. It means going back into it, beginning to identify it. That's why I wrote the book. There's a hole in my love cup. To begin to pull out those voices from inside of you and also flush out all the pain and fears that accompany those beliefs you were taught about yourself. All right, next question, next question. Uh, right. Oh yeah. This is one, uh, we get now and then, but it's, it never gets old because it's so powerful. How to deal with toxic in-laws. Husband has a very hard time standing up to them. 
if your husband has a hard time standing up to him, that says they're probably transgressing, uh, trespassing past boundaries, giving their opinions on you, on him as well, on potentially on your parenting, on your relationship. Um, if your husband is not going to stand up to him, then unfortunately you have to. In relationships, yeah, it's kind of, your family is kind of your responsibility and my family is my responsibility to sort of keep them out of our relationship uh, to the degree that it feels comfortable to keep them out or to the degree it allows us, you know, you want to keep them in. But if he's not willing to do it, unfortunately, you need to continue to have, and I no, have no doubt you already have, but you need to continue to have the come to Jesus moments uh, with, or conversations with your husband. But then it may require you standing up and having that conversation with uh, the in-laws themselves. Um, but yeah, if you can't get support from your husband, I mean, if the in-laws are hurting you with their words or th things they're implying or things they're doing, you have every right to stand up for yourself. Next question. A new manager is bullying me at work, which triggers my PTSD. My manager can't stop her. What do I do? Um, first thing you do, you, the fact that you went to your manager, good, smart. Next thing is go to HR. Do not, do not, do not uh, continue in a situation where you are being bullied and you have every right in any workplace to report that and to have that shut down. I'm curious, just curious, who holds rank, uh, the new manager or your manager? Um, because if the if your manager holds rank over the new manager that's bullying you and they won't do anything, you gotta report that new manager too because that's a fucked up work environment. Um, but you have to stand up for yourself, you have to. And it sucks that your manager isn't standing up for you. That sucks and that's bullshit. And you have to stand up and make that known. Could it lead to you leaving? Yes, could it lead to, Somebody doing shit behind the scene causing you to lose your job? Yes, but I'm more worried about your essence. I'm more worried about your voice, your person being bullied, just continuing in a toxic situation. Um, stand up for yourself, and if it is not fixed, you, you gotta trust your own gut. My thought is you gotta get the fuck out of there. You can't, don't deal with that. Don't keep, stay in a situation where you're being hurt. Don't do that if you can, uh, if you can, get on with it and get out of there. If they won't fix it, get out of there. All right. But you got to, again, you have to trust your own inner voice, but you have to protect yourself. All right. Next question. How to deal with wife's affair and recent divorce? Uh, there's no question mark on it, but I'm going to assume the question mark. How do I deal with my wife's affair and recent divorce? Well, it sounds like there's nothing to deal with with regard to your wife. It's done. It's gone, right? The divorce is done, um, which means you are not going to get your needs met from her, obviously. Um, so the idea of going to her and wanting an apology or the idea of going to her and wanting to talk it out, she's in likely self-protection mode. And if she's selfish enough to have an affair um, and then you know get a divorce, but especially the affair, she's clearly not terribly concerned about your feelings. I mean, let's be real honest. You would have, if she had talked it out and done all these things, you likely would have indicated this. So you're left hanging is what I hear you saying. You said, you know, what do I do about my wife's affair and recent divorce? First thing you got to do, most important thing in the case of uh, your wife's affair and the divorce is you have to start grieving. You have to start flushing out all the fucking pain because you use the word deal with deal with. That implies stuff inside of you. You're not having to deal with her. She's gone, right? And that makes you sad. The mere hearing me say those words, the mere thought of it, you're grieving. Otherwise, there'd be nothing to deal with, obviously. But not just the, the feelings of grief, but the feelings of betrayal and so many feelings churning inside of you. That's what we're really talking about, aren't we? 
So first of all, I'd say if you aren't in therapy, it's probably a good idea to get into it, but you can heal yourself. And that involves the journaling, the letter writing, you know, this is why I made, you know, this fucking podcast and put these shows out there so people can hear their own story in someone else's story. And that has a healing effect and it provides prompts for you in your journal writing. Uh, another recommendation that you guys hear me recommend all the time is I would strongly recommend that you start with one long letter to your ex-wife that you do not send, do not send. Why not send it? Because if you think you're going to send it, first of all, it's not going to have any effect. She's gone, all right? Uh, but more importantly, if you are thinking about sending a letter to a parent you know, who you're still wanting love from or to the brother who's being mean to you or whatever, if you think about sending it, you're going to edit it. And the goal of this letter writing is not to edit. The goal is not to send. It's not for anyone else. It's to flush, to flush all of your pain and sadness and grief in, in your case here, uh, Michael, to flush all the grief and betrayal and sadness and hatred and anger and love and longing for your wife as a result of her affair and divorce. You got to flush out all the grief and all the rage and everything and flush and letter writing is the easiest way to do it. I also recommend, I mean, sure, physical exercise and yoga and all those things, they can get the physical release of the physical energy, but if there are not words put to the experience, if there are not words, write poetry, maybe you like to write poetry, whatever it is, if you don't put words to what happened, then the words, the grief, the emotion, the anger stays inside. You have to use your words. I know that sounds like how what we'd say to a four-year-old who's, you know, just, <laughs> whatever. Use your words, use your words. But it's the same. That's what counseling is. You go in, you use your words. You know, I, in which I, I have to say, there are so many couples where the <laughs> one person in the couple is saying, you know, we need to go to therapy, whatever, whatever. I need you to listen to my needs more. And I need you. And the other person says, I don't fucking need therapy. You know, I'm good enough. And, but the reason, you know, first of all, they don't want therapy. Of course, they think they don't need it. Of course, they think they're perfect. But here's the other thing. They'll rant and they'll say everything that's wrong with you and they'll put you down. So that is their therapy. On one hand, they get to talk. They get to talk all of their problems out. They get to hammer on you. But the second you bring anything out, it's like, no, 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 that's bullshit. So they obviously believe in therapy because they believe in flushing out all the anger that they have and all their hurt that they're going to dump on you. So they say, oh, I don't believe in therapy. Bullshit, you're doing it all the time. You're dumping your shit onto me. That's what therapy is. You dump it on the therapist. Yeah, you don't believe in therapy, my ass. All right. And I know no one here was saying they don't believe in therapy. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be on this fucking show. But no, man, it's just like, you got to flush it out. People, you got to give it words. You got to give it words. And this is why I love, you know, young people with their healing, because they're still poetic at that age. I had a client, one of my favorite clients, just a beautiful man, and longed to um, be a poet. Be a poet. Ended up going into medicine had a very successful career. By the time he came to me, he just said, Sven, the success means nothing to me at this point. It's just hollow. All I ever wanted to do was spend my life writing poetry. And he started writing more poetry. And we've sort of fallen out of touch, but he started giving his life back to his heart. And through poetry, he could express his truth. Well, for me, it's journaling. And for other people, it's whatever it might be. But it, we need to find the words for our experiences and find the words for your pain. Naming the beast is half the problem. 
As you guys have heard me say a million times, my 93-year-old mother before passing away, that she always said that for years and years and years, and she did this work long before I did, and she said, Sven, just always remember, naming the beast is half the problem. All right, next question. Oh, here we go. This sort of in a similar vein. I have two here, and I'm gonna just layer them right on top of each other. How do you deal with a female spouse who is a relentless nag and who has a violent temper, Okay. And then what do you do when it feels like you're putting in lots of effort, but your partner isn't reciprocating? Those are both derivative of uh, fundamentally the same problem. I'm trying to be a good person here and trying to create a good relationship and my partner isn't doing their share of the work or my partner is just, just a violent tempered person. What do you do when basically there's an imbalance of investment in the relationship or not only an imbalance of how much we're both investing, but the other person is constantly making withdrawals by being an asshole or by being absent or whatever it might be. What do you do? Well, in both of these cases, in any situation where you feel like you're investing more into a relationship than your partner is, or that your partner's being an asshole, which is sort of the next notch up in terms of uh, severity of the problem, what you do is, and, and I know you've already done this, but I, for our listeners, you, you have to stand up for yourself. You have to stand up for yourself. And most people, when I say that, then they say, Sven, I have stood up for myself. I said, yeah, but then you've sat back down. I said, what the fuck are you talking about? I said, a problem only persists if I allow it to persist. Well, Sven, that's blaming the victim. No, I'm not calling you the cause of your wife's violent temper. I'm not calling you the cause that your uh, husband or wife isn't giving you the love that you are putting into the relationship, that they, they aren't returning on investment at all or very little. I'm not saying you're the cause. Their shit, their pain, their selfishness is the cause. But every day that I allow, allow it, your conditioning from your past, your pain from your past is causing you to allow that to continue. Allow. We treat, and we all, we've all heard these fucking quotes, right? Every single person here has heard those fucking quotes. You know, we teach people how to treat us. When someone shows you who they are, believe them, et cetera, et cetera, right? I condition my lover. I condition my friends. I condition my whomever around me. I condition them how to treat me, right? By what I allow and by what I don't allow. I get this one a lot. I'll say, you know, somebody will say to me, oh, my husband, he was such an asshole and he was selfish. I think he was a narcissist and all this shit. Uh, but now he's in a new relationship. He's been in this new relationship for four years and they seem happy and, and uh, you know, how do it seems like he's changed or whatever. And I say, well, the pain that was causing him to be a narcissistic prick, that pain, oh, that's still in there. He probably hasn't done the work, but what has possibly happened is that the person he's with now doesn't allow him to be an asshole to her. Now, I am not blaming the victim. I'm not saying the victim is the cause. I'm saying I teach people how to treat me by what I allow. So if you're, you say your female spouse is a relentless nag who has a violent temper, and then the other person says, destruct says, what do you do when it feels like you're putting in lots of effort, but your partner isn't reciprocating? You stop allowing. People change fundamentally, People change for many reasons, but I believe what ultimately causes people who are selfish or people who are hurtful or rude or mean or extreme takers to change is pain. We just taped an episode of the Badass Counseling Show this morning. We just taped it in studio on narcissism, easily the most powerful episode. And Christ Almighty, just a week or two ago, it was our most powerful episode. Then we just taped this one today. It's like, holy cow. 
a narcissist and a victim of narcissistic abuse in the same room. They don't even know each other in the same Zoom room. It was amazing. And so my point is people only change when there's a pain point. They're only going to change if you stand up and you don't back down. See, what happens when I stand up, if there's an imbalance of power and I stand up, the other person is going to escalate even higher. Why? They just want to get their foot right back on my throat. They just want to put me back in the position where they're getting all the love and they don't have to invest anything. I'm investing everything. They're investing nothing. All right. Much more to come right after this short break. You've heard Sven talk a lot about his book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. And that's because Sven hears from his followers a lot about how much the book has helped them. If you're not sure how to handle the issues getting in the way of a better life, you're not alone. And you have a lot of choices. But thousands of readers will tell you that this is a great place to start. By yourself and at your own pace. So go to badasscounseling.com and order There's a Hole in My Love Cup. And you'll have Sven right there with you as you forge your best future. It's totally badass. So get started today. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. We are back in a lightning round. Back at it. Here we go. The tomato lord has the question or the statement, as it were. People want to impress their parents too much. Straight from the tomato Lord, the Lord has spoken. My response to that is, and what does that say? I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm neither accepting nor rejecting that, that people want to impress their parents too much. It's a subjective statement, but let's run with it for a minute. Let's run with it as if it's true. People want to impress their parents too much. M- makes me ask the question, why? Why do you think that is? What are you seeking if you're trying to impress your parent? Why would I want to impress? You didn't say people want to love their parents too much. You said impress. And usually when we are trying to impress someone, you know, if I wear a fancy suit and I'm trying to impress people at this party, it's because I'm wanting something from them. So why would someone want to impress their parents? What is it they're likely wanting? Well, the answer is pretty clear, pretty kind of obvious. They're wanting positive attention, just like when I wear that suit at the party and I never wear a suit. So here I am wearing a suit. Sven must want to impress someone. He must want these people to like him or think well of him. It's the same way with parents. They're trying to get love. They're trying to get positive attention or sometimes even negative attention if they can't get positive attention. So people are trying to impress their parents. Unfortunately, why would I have to impress a parent in order to get attention? See, that's the problem. It's not that they're doing it too much. It's that they have to do it at all. Because what it implies is that I only get that positive attention. I only get that parent pouring love into my love cup if I'm impressing them or doing what they want or avoiding doing what they don't want. So the mere fact that someone's having to impress a parent likely to get love uh, it's not a good sign. And that shit goes way back to childhood. Guaranteed, they've been doing it their whole life, that they've had to perform in one way or another to get attention from a parent. So when you see someone trying to impress their parent too much, if you don't feel compassion for them and understand that what's driving it is pain and lack of love, you're missing the point. And I'm not saying you particularly, Tomato Lord. I'm just saying for all of us in general, if you see someone trying to impress a parent, what they're fundamentally saying is I have to work to get my parents' love. That my parents' love towards me, them pouring love into my love cup is based on action rather than just my essence. 
Good parenting is when the child knows their love simply for who they are. I am alive. You are my child. You are good. You are great. You are wonderful. You make good decisions. Even when you screw up, big deal. I love you. You are my child in whom I am well pleased. That's good parenting. <laughs> highly problematic, long-term, highly, highly problematic parenting is when you got to go through the hoops or you need to impress me or I don't like what you just did there. You need to change because I want something different. Even to a freaking adult. I'm not even talking about just a little kid. Um, so that, that longing to impress is a longing to get positive attention, love. All right, next question. How do I know I am ready for a new relationship after a long-term narcissist relationship? Well, the mere fact that you're asking that question says that you want a relationship. Otherwise, you wouldn't even be considering that question. So you want a new relationship. Um, what I would ask you to identify for yourself in your um, journaling and or counseling with your therapist, but particularly in your journaling, is what do you believe was really driving you in that narcissistic relationship? What was keeping you in it? What was the fear driving the behavior that kept you in it? That would be my first question. Second question I would ask you, and I'm, I'm hoping you're writing these down because you need to be looking at these in your own journaling. Second question I would ask you is, when was the first time something felt off? And I want you to go way back to the beginning. And then whatever you name now, oh, it was right before we got married and, and this thing happened. And then go back even further. Was there something before that that felt off? And then go back something even that just felt off. And why did you keep going when it felt off? And was there a repeated pattern of times where shit felt off or it didn't feel good or you were being mistreated? When did the mistreatment start? Why did I allow it? And the reason you have to ask that, again, I'm not victim blaming. I'm not blaming you for how you were treated. What I'm saying is if you want to solve the future, you have to look back at the past and say, what was going on inside of me that I tolerated this shit? Because until I can answer that question and adjust that dial, I'm going to do it again. There's high probability I will do it again. So to what degree have you examined your past relationship to determine when that uh, narcissistic or extreme taker, as I like to call it, that extreme taking, when did it start? How did it manifest itself? Why did I miss it? Or why did I not want to see it? Or how did I address it then? And what allowed that problem to metastasize? And again, this isn't to blame you. This is simply to help you find what's going on inside of you. And I, you know, I'm not Buddhist, but I'll steal from the Buddhist. And you know, one of the things they talk about is that awareness, life change, the fulcrum of life on which so much hinges is awareness. And not necessarily aware of what's going, around, going on around you. If you're an extreme people pleaser or an extreme giver, oh, you're an expert at what's going on around you, aren't you? You got fucking cameras monitoring people. Okay, what do I need to do to get love from this person? What do I need to do? What do they like? And so you become an expert. Okay, I'll give them this. I'll give them, I'll give more. I'll give more. I'll give more. Then I'll get some love in return, right? I talk about this in the book. But no, the awareness that I'm talking about, that the Buddhists talk about, is this awareness of what's really fucking going on inside of me. See, when we cut children off from their feelings, when we teach them that your feelings don't matter, only my feelings matter, I'm king of the house, or I'm the alcoholic, or you gotta walk on eggshells around me, we're teaching the child that your feelings, who you really are, doesn't matter. And so they crush that stuff down. They lock it in the vault, or they put it in that cigar box and lock up that cigar box, wrap it up in duct tape, and stick it way down deep inside under the bed next to the Christmas sweaters, Right? Right. And so if you're not good at, if you haven't been allowed to feel your feelings, then the notion of feeling what's going on inside of you 
when somebody mistreats you. You've already shut that off years ago. So you get into a relationship now. You're not tuned into what's going on inside of you except the elation of, oh, somebody likes me. Oh, somebody likes me. Oh, somebody likes me. But all those other red flags have been turned off either because you've been conditioned to not even see them as red flags, right? Because that's normal treatment. Oh, somebody yelling at me? Oh, fuck. That's not red flag. I'm used to that. Or you can't even feel any feelings. Red flags don't exist because you've shut off your feelings years ago because your feelings weren't safe. They weren't allowed. And so the question becomes, are you tuned? You're wondering, how do you know if I've come out of a narcissistic relationship, how do I know when I'm ready to go back in? Um, you know, this would require a deeper conversation, but ultimately, have you confronted your fears? Have you confronted, are you aware of what's going on inside of you? Do you feel your feelings? And do you have the courage to stand up and say no when someone is tra- hurting your feelings, transgressing your feelings and you to say no, because you have to do it at the start and you have to do it at every turn because that's how we condition a new partner, a new friend. Uh, That's how we condition anyone for how to treat us. But if I allow the poor treatment, I'm teaching this person, it's okay to treat me that way. Well, that's just gonna fucking metastasize. That's a cancer that ain't ain't gonna go smaller. That one's just gonna get bigger. All right, next question. I stayed with a cheater because I made excuses for them. This is some of the best advice I've heard. Well, you're very sweet. Thank you, Aaron. Um, But I want to look at what you said in your first sentence there. I stayed with a cheater because I made excuses for him. That's right. And what would be really interesting, and I could probably guess the answer, but what would be really interesting is to ask you, why did you make the excuses for them? If there were a fear driving that behavior, that you're making excuses for the cheater, you're defending a person cheating on you in your own head, what was the fear driving the behavior? Because you guys know me well. It's it's always fear. Everything is fear. If you're, or you know, or I ask the question: If you're ever trying to understand why someone is doing something that doesn't make sense, always ask yourself the question: What's the primary fear driving the behavior? Then speculate the answers. Write down whatever the answers might be, and then go with the biggest, hairiest, scariest one. That's why someone is cheating, or that's why someone is doing that. Not not cheating. That's why someone is doing something that doesn't make sense. And in this case, you were defending a cheater. You are making excuses for them, whether to others or to yourself, because you were afraid of something. And I'm willing to bet. If Vegas were giving me odds, I would bet my left testicle on this one. Yes, I would. Um, Although I don't know what I would get as a payout if I won. But you made excuses for the cheater because you couldn't bear the thought of A, being alone. That's a standard one. And or B, standing up for yourself. Very often, as I've already been talking about with people, please, we endure, we endure, we endure, we take more and more crap and we give and give and give and give more. And I used to be a people pleaser. So I'm just, I'm reading out of the same books you people pleasers are, right? I'm one of you, or I was. We keep doing more. Why? Because I don't want to stand up for myself because I'm afraid if I stand up for myself and standing up for myself means saying what I want or what I won't tolerate or what I don't like. I'm afraid that if I do that, you'll walk away. You won't like me anymore. You won't give me love in return. So I'm just, I've got my cameras going, constantly monitoring everyone. I'm trying to see what you need to feel loved and to make you happy and to make you like me. And then I'll just do those things and then you'll like me. Then you'll give me love rather than standing up against what I don't want and standing up for what I do want and insisting that you treat me well. So yeah, yeah, making excuse for a cheater in all likelihood, you didn't. You were conditioned to not believe in yourself, that it wasn't okay to stand up for yourself, the fear that if I stand up for myself, you won't like me, you won't give me love, the fear of being alone. Of course, you're afraid of being alone because all those voices, all the bullshit you were taught about yourself in your past, all those voices come up and <laughs> roar and tumble in your head like clothes in a fucking clothes dryer that won't turn off, right? They just get toasted. All right. Oh, you know what? We had a question a little bit ago and uh, asked, you know, how do I know I've come out of a narcissistic relationship? 
And uh, how do I know when I'm ready to get back into a new one? And another person just wrote in and said, you know, you're ready when you're no longer afraid. And I didn't, it scrolled right by me, but whoever said that, score. That's what it really is. And that's why you have to go into what your fears were in the past that kept you tolerating such horseshit behavior, right? You have to go into those fears. Naming the beast is half the problem. You have to name those fears and you have to flush out where those fears came from. You have to identify the origins of those messages. But once you're no longer afraid, I, I love that. Whoever just said that, you get a gold star on your paper today, as my mom would always say. All right. People pleasing everyone but ourselves. We, we forget we matter. And I love that mama bear. I'm gonna tweak one little thing. It's not that we forget. We were conditioned to believe. People pleasers were conditioned to believe they don't matter. So it's not even a forgetting. You, you knew it at childhood or it was there at childhood. It wasn't that you forgot, it's that it was stolen from you. That belief that you matter and that you are good was stolen from you at some age. You were conditioned to believe you don't matter. And basically, whatever gets pressed, those messages that get pressed into the wet cement of your soul in childhood, they harden, they calcify, and they run the show for a long time until those beliefs drag you down from the inside. They, they're the virus uh, infecting the operating system of your whole fucking computer. And until that computer goes into shutdown, until the soul overpowers the will and says, no, we have to go, take, go to Geek Squad. We got to go to Soul Geek Squad and get this virus rooted out. Until that happens at 45 or 55 or 32 or 18, until that happens, those core beliefs are still running the show and they will infect every single fucking decision you make, especially parenting. And that's where the real damage gets done. All righty. Do you have another question for me? All uh, right, in all capital letters, mind you, screaming either at me because I'm a dim-witted person or out of immense frustration and anger or something, what about a husband who makes major purchases without considering his wife's opinion? Okay, um, two answers. One, if something happens once, it's a one-off or we let it be a one-off, right? Talk about it ask that it not happen again, express our feelings. That was, I feel disrespected when you made a major purchase without considering my opinion as your wife. And you make your feelings known, that is your responsibility to make your feelings known, condition him on how you expect to be treated. But if it happens a second time, if it happens a fourth time, Houston, we have a motherfucking problem in the cockpit. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit. Bottom line, he doesn't give a shit. He doesn't give a shit about your feelings, opinions, thoughts regarding the family finances. Making major purchases without considering his wife's opinion. Assuming, I have to assume that the original contract, sort of the social contract, your relationship was that that shit doesn't fly. That we're a team, we do things together. I mean, if you went into the relationship with sort of the assumption we can each make you know major purchases without the other person's opinion, and he's continued to do that, then he's not really at fault if that was the original contract. But what you seem to be implying is that this is a deviation from the original contract, so to speak. And um, and if it's a deviation from the contract and it's more than a one-off, yeah, you have every not only right to stand up for him and say this shit has to stop, which you've already done, I'm sure. But it's a necessity for your own sanity and you wouldn't be shouting it at me. What about a husband who makes major purchases without considering his wife's opinion? He does not give a fuck. Did you hear me on that one? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. In fact, at this point, if it's happened more than you know once, if it's happened three, four times, 
Now he's doing it deliberately. Now he's deliberately saying, fuck you, fuck you. He's probably even saying, fuck you, bitch, in his head. How do you feel about that? And I know how you feel about that because you already feel disrespected. You feel mad. You feel sad. I mean, this is a breakdown of a marriage right here. It's broken. Not irreparably, but it is broken where he's off making major purchases without considering your wife's opinion. You are not a team, especially if you were at one point in the past and that was the original social contract. He's just saying, fuck you at this point. He wants out, but it's very possible he wants out, but he's too much of a coward to come right out and say, I want to end the relationship. Instead, he's going to make all these major purchases, spend the fucking money, and then either walk away or you'll walk away from him because he doesn't want to look like the bad guy. Hey, she's the bitch that walked away, right? So he wants to make you look bad. And meanwhile, in the meantime, he's going to siphon off all the money until you do, or he's going to make you so angry so that you'll finally divorce him. That way he gets to look like the nice guy and she was the bitch. She's the one that got the divorce. So many people will cheat or spend the family money or neglect the other spouse or just become a tyrant or become a you know violent tempered person. They will do that because somewhere in them, they know they want out of the relationship, but they don't have the courage to do it. So they'll cheat as a way to blow up the relationship so that, and this is going to sound fucking strange, so that they don't have to look like the bad guy for ending the relationship. Well, wait a minute, you're cheating, you get caught. That's kind of the bad guy. Yeah, but it's better than having to look you in the face and end the relationship and endure your being mad at me and you're being sad. It, it, it's the rationale sounds insane, but deep down very often, remember I've written a two volume book on cheating, I've had a counseling practice for over 30 years in, and cheating from personal experience, being cheated on, I cheated once, I was cheated on in multiple relationships and I was the co-cheater in a bunch of cheating relationships. Not real fucking proud of it. And it ended when I was about 40, 38, whatever. But the point is, this isn't book shit. This is fucking lived, all right? Plus counseling people. And I am fucking telling you that yes, deep down inside a cheater, very often they want out of the fucking relationship. They'll say, no, I just, and they'll make up every fucking excuse in the fucking book, every bullshit line of rationale, and you'll believe them to a degree. But no, man, it's it's just... They, they they want out or they just, they want more. It's not even that they want both. They just don't have the courage to end one. Sure, they want both. Who wouldn't want more love? Double love, right? Double mint, double scoops of ice cream. Everybody wants double. Who doesn't want a double cheeseburger when you can have one? Wait, I can have two? Of course, right. Um, no, he's he's a fucking coward. This, this person doesn't, he's literally saying to you, you know, how do these kids say it nowadays? You know, they'll say, oh, Somebody was dogging me in a, in a TikTok the other day. They're saying, dude, you got like three layers on. What are you weak? You know, of clothes, right? I do my TikToks outside. What are you weak? I said, tell me you're not from the North without telling me you're not from the North, right? So in the case of your husband here, what he's, ba- he, you know, he's making all these major purchases without considering you. It's like, yeah, tell me how to say fuck you to your wife without saying fuck you to your wife. He's saying fuck you to you. He does not care. He is saying, fuck you. Regardless of what coming out of his pie hole, his actions are saying, I fucking hate you. Or go fuck yourself. Or you're so insignificant to me. That's what he's fucking telling you. More to come in a minute. But first, a short break. Here's a conversation I recently had with my producer, KC. So KC, you've been in this business a long time. Why do you work on my show? It's because we're helping people change their lives. Listen to some of the feedback we get. Finding that podcast changed my life, my career, and the way I parent my son. This man basically broke my generational trauma. Or this one. I heard one of your podcasts last week, and it was talking about 
how a girl was always very reactive when she was talking to her mom. And then it was because she's constantly listening to all the negative things her mom said, and that became her own inner voice. I shared that with my therapist, and when I say I was in tears, I was bawling. I've only ever brought my mom up in therapy like two or three times, and today was a major breakthrough. So thank you so much, Sven. You're amazing. Well, Casey, I love having you on the show, and you're amazing what you bring to the team. And it's cool to think that we're touching people's lives, and thanks for what you put into it. I really believe in this show. People should definitely subscribe and download it. It'll change your life. Back with more to kick your ass is Sven. Hey, guys. We are back in the lightning round. And some really fun questions today across the map, across the board. And uh, I got a couple queued up here. This is from T. Sorosiak. Uh, am I, pl quote, playing the victim, end quote, when I show emotion when trying to be understood? No. When trying to be understood, that implies you're not feeling understood, obviously. I'm trying to be understood. I want you to see me. And when I'm trying to show me to someone, naturally feelings come with that. No, you're not seeing me. Or why won't you see me? It's natural that anger might come or that sadness might come. Are you playing the victim? No. And somebody playing the, you're playing the victim card, someone playing that card of accusing you of playing the victim is not somebody who's playing fair. That's someone not wanting to listen and likely because they can't deal with your feelings. They can't deal with the, the idea of you, you're being sad. And so they're going to belittle you. So you're in a relationship with someone who's fucking belittling you. So you got that going for you. No, that sucks. And it's not fair and it's not okay. So I'm telling you, no, definitively, you are not playing the victim. And I mean, if you want proof of that, let me just ask you this question. You won't be able to answer because we're on a live feed here, but are you playing the victim? No, I, I guarantee your answer is no, because you wouldn't even ask that fucking question. No, you're just being real. You're trying to be real and feel heard and feel understood and be seen. We all want to be seen in life. We all want to be accepted for who we really are, male or female, fucking non-binary. This is everyone. Whether it's in our friendships or in love, we want to be loved for who we really are. But of course, the downside of that is you have to show who you really are. That's the scary part, right? Because it's far easier to be rejected for a persona or a false version of myself, the version of myself I've always been versus who I really am. You put that out there and then you get rejected. Well, that hurts. That's a sting of a different stripe, right? But that's what it means to be seen and to be heard. It's to have the courage to put yourself out there. And if you've been stung in the past, it's a little scary, but you got to just keep doing it. And the people who really love you will accept that and welcome that and encourage that. And they love who you really are. But it all starts with you having the courage to reveal who you really are. Next question. This is a good one. I've never had this question on the show and I like it. I like it. How do I feel like I'm not in a competition with my ex on who can find new love first? <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at the somewhat universality of that question and derivative questions where you're in competition with an ex or you're tracking, you know, sort of relative success. It's what we go through when we're young in our 20s and 30s and shit. And while all my friends, they're having this success or they're all getting married and I'm not married yet, where we compare ourselves, you know, the keeping up with the Joneses shit. Um... It just takes on a different flavor in different generations and whatever, um, nuances and so forth. But uh, how do I feel? So you're in that, you're in a competition with your ex on who can find new love first. And you're asking, how do I basically get out of this fucking loop? Well, first of all, let me tell you this. If you are racing to find love first, you're not healed. 
So I guarantee you're going to fucking blow up that next relationship. Or I guarantee you are going to find someone who's going to fucking torch you. The mere fact that you're rushing into love says you are not going at your pace, that your love, your new relationship is being determined by this external source, your ex-lover. Yes, it is being determined because you're racing. You're looking at this person, looking at them, looking at them, looking at them, wanting to get love first so that I can look at them and say, ha ha, fuck you, right? Right, so some external source is determining the speed and flow of your life and your love relationship. So in other words, your ex is still running your life. You realize that, right? You realize that if you are comparing yourself to your ex and you're trying to get a new relationship, I wanna get there faster, I have faster, 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 that if you're doing that, they're determining. They are significantly influencing the, the velocity of your life. And you're choosing love, not because this is the right person in front of you. They're in the ballpark. I'll take them as long as it means beating the ex. That means your new relationship, you're basically saying fuck you to this person you're getting into a new relationship with. Do you want to know why? Because part of the reason, sounds like a significant part of the reason you're getting into this new relationship is as a fuck you to your ex. So this person in front of you, this new person, let's call him Paul. Paul, you're just here so I can say fuck you to my ex. It's like the people who have a second child just so our first child will have a play friend. Not a good reason to have a child. There's got to be a little more behind it than that. Right. Paul, Paul, you're getting fucked over, dude. <laughs> you're getting fucked over. You're a placeholder, just so I can say I beat him. I mean, you're nice. You're in the ballpark. Not everything I want, but you're good enough. Come on in. Good to have you here. You know, try the veal. So how do I feel like I'm not in a competition with my ex? You got to go inside yourself. You got to do your fucking journaling. You got to look at why do you want to compete with your ex? Why are you still comparing yourself to your ex? What's the fear? Is the fear that if they get love first, then they're better than me? So I'm still comparing myself to my ex? Is that what's going on here? What is the fear driving the behavior? The question is, how do I feel like I'm not in competition with my ex on who can find new love first? You have to go inside yourself and ask yourself, what is the primary fear driving the behavior? What do I fear happening? if I don't find love first, that he gets to say, ha ha, I beat you, or what is it? And you realize how, I don't mean to be rude, but how petty that is, how small that is. You're letting your love life, your future relationship be determined by not just a past relationship, but be determined by something as small as wanting to be first. It's like, no, you, you gotta heal that shit because you are going to fuck over your next relationship. It won't be the other person's fault because you got into love with Paul or whomever for the wrong reason. You got into it to beat X rather than to be fully present to Paul. Which means, and just for the record, even if you get in that relationship with Paul, if the voice of your ex is what got you into the relationship, do you think that voice of your ex is now gonna magically go away? No. The voice of your ex is still whispering in your fucking ear and you're still fucking listening. And that will infect that relationship with Paul or whomever it might be. All righty. I'm gonna take one more question. How to deal with partner silent treatment after an argument? Uh, yeah, man, some people honestly, are very susceptible to silent treatment. And, and it hurts because you don't know where they stand, right? Some people, it's like, oh, you want to hurt them? Go silent. And, and that may be what your uh, partner is doing, deliberately going silent as a way to fucking hurt you. It may be that. You don't give me an indication of whether it's deliberate, like to hurt you, or it's just they need their space. Because I'll be very honest with you, every relationship that I've ever been in, we take a break you know, whether it's five minutes or an hour or a day after an argument or, you know, a yelling fight, you know, when back when they used to have those, <laughs> too old for that shit now. But, well, that's not completely true. Occasionally I raise my voice. 
But you, you take a break. You got to cool down, right? And as a big guy, I'm six foot four. Most time about 275 pounds lately, though I've trimmed down. I have to be very deliberate about getting out. When you're when you're a big guy growing up, it's like when you know you're being pushed, someone's pushing you, or the situation's getting where, you know, whatever, you got to get out of the situation. And so I'll remove myself. And I've had women that I've been in relationship with block the door so I can't get out. And I have to wedge myself out that door because it's just like you're creating like, you, you just can't do that. So sometimes it's necessary to take a break, an hour, a day, uh, 15 minutes, and to be silent and to return to myself and quiet myself down. But you seem to be implying that you, you, you state the problem. How do I deal with a partner's silent treatment after an argument? You're stating the, the issue as if it isn't, potentially it's not for this person to cool down. It's their way of saying fuck you to you. So they're trying to hurt you by doing that. Then what you need to do is precisely what I was talking about the last, uh, with the last question. You need to go inside yourself and you need to look at what's going on inside of me. You need to get a pan pad, a paper, and a pen, and you need to start writing out your feelings. What am I feeling right now? I'm feeling fear that he may leave me. I'm feeling sadness that he won't talk to me. I'm feeling really fucking angry that he cuts me out. I want to connect. I want to connect, and he's cutting me out, and I know he's not doing it because he needs to cool down, like Sven said. I know he's doing it to hurt me because he knows it hurts me, and okay, you're getting agitated, aren't you? Yeah, you are. Okay, got to flush all those feelings out. Keep flushing and flushing and flushing the feelings, and then always ask yourself, what is the primary fear driving my behavior? my behavior of getting so anxiety ridden over being given the silent treatment. So he clearly has power over you. All he has to do is go silent and you get worked up, all right? Understandable, I'm not dogging you for that. But what is the primary fear driving you that is causing you to feel so worked up? Fine people, it has been a wonderful hour to be with you here today, to have Rob and KC here with me. Rob, how you doing? Great, couldn't be better, Sven. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I bought the first line, but then you get to that third line, and I know it's just bullshit. You're the best. Oh, okay, right. That's sincerity, what, <laughs> sincerity, my friend. <laughs> the only person that ever said that to me was my mommy. Sven, you're the best. No, <laughs> and all my siblings, no, that's not true. Uh, anyway, I'm teasing. It's been great having you here. I have Casey over in the booth. She's been great. And Rob, always. And thank you so much for your great questions. For all of those of you in South Minneapolis, in Los Angeles, in the Los Feliz neighborhood. Those of you in Adelaide and Brisbane and my, my fans and listeners in Dublin and you know, way up in Reykjavik. I know I have a few up there. It's great to have everyone here. Thank you for tuning into the show. And on behalf of the production team and myself, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Hey.